This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Today's podcast is a reading of The Unnameable by H.P. Lovecraft. It's read by Mr. Jim Moon of the Hypnagoria Podcast. It runs 24 minutes and we will be discussing it afterward. The Unnameable by H.P. Lovecraft We were sitting on a dilapidated 17th century tomb in the late afternoon of an autumn day at the old burying ground in Arkham and speculating about the Unnameable. Looking towards the giant willow in the centre of the cemetery, whose trunks had nearly engulfed an ancient illegible slab, I had made a fantastic remark about the spectral and unmentionable nourishment which the colossal roots must be sucking from that hoary charnel earth. Well, my friend chided me for such nonsense, and told me that, since no interments had occurred there for over a century, nothing could possibly exist to nourish the tree in other than an ordinary manner. Besides, he added, my constant talk about unnameable and and unmentionable things was a very puerile device, quite in keeping with my lowly standing as an author. I was too fond of ending my stories with sights or sounds which paralyzed my hero's faculties and left them without courage, words, or associations to tell what they had experienced. We know things, he said, only through our five senses, or our religious intuitions. Wherefore, it is quite impossible to refer to any object or spectacle which cannot be clearly depicted by the solid definitions of fact, or the correct doctrines of theology, preferably those of the Congregationalists, with whatever modifications tradition and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle may supply. With this friend, Joel Manton, I had often languidly disputed. He was principal of the East High School, born and bred in Boston, and sharing New England's self-satisfied deafness to the delicate overtones of life. It was his view that only our normal, objective experiences possess any aesthetic significance, and that it is the province of an artist not so much to rouse strong emotion by action, ecstasy, and astonishment, as to maintain a placid interest and appreciation by accurate, detailed transcripts of everyday affairs. Especially did he object to my preoccupation with the mystical and the unexplained. For, although believing in the supernatural much more fully than I, he would not admit that it is sufficiently commonplace for literary treatment. That a mind can find its greatest pleasure in escapes from the daily treadmill, and in original and dramatic recombinations of images usually thrown by habit and fatigue into the hackneyed patterns of actual existence, was something virtually incredible to his clear, practical and logical intellect. With him, all things and feelings had fixed dimensions, properties, causes, and effects. And although he vaguely knew that the mind sometimes holds visions and sensations, 
of far less geometrical, classifiable, and workable nature. He believed himself justified in drawing an arbitrary line and ruling out of court all that cannot be experienced and understood by the average citizen. Besides, he was almost sure that nothing can be really unnameable. It didn't sound sensible to him. Though I well realized the futility of imaginative and metaphysical arguments against the complacency of an orthodox sun dweller, something in the scene of this afternoon colloquy moved me to more than usual contentiousness. The crumbling slate slabs, the patriarchal trees, and the centuried gambrel roofs of the witch haunted old town that stretched around. All combined to rouse my spirit in defence of my work, and soon I was carrying my thrusts into the enemy's own country. It was not, indeed, difficult to begin a counter-attack, for I knew that Joel Manton actually half clung to many old wives' superstitions, which sophisticated people had long outgrown: beliefs in the appearance of dying persons at distant places. And in the impressions left by old faces in the windows through which they had gazed all their lives, to credit these whisperings of rural grandmothers, I now insisted, argued a faith in the existence of spectral substances on the earth, apart from and subsequent to their material counterparts. It argued a capability of believing in phenomena beyond all normal notions. For if a dead man can transmit his visible or tangible image half across the world, or down the stretch of the centuries, how can it be absurd to suppose that deserted houses are full of queer sentient beings, or that old graveyards teem with the terrible unbodied intelligence of generations? And since spirit, in order to cause all the manifestations attributed to it, Cannot be limited by any of the laws of matter. Why is it extravagant to imagine psychically living dead things in shapes or absences of shapes, which must, for human spectators, be utterly and appallingly unnameable? Common sense, in reflecting on these subjects, I assured my friend with some warmth, is merely a stupid absence of imagination and mental flexibility. Twilight had now approached, but neither of us felt any wish to cease speaking. Manton seemed unimpressed by my arguments, and was eager to refute them, having that confidence in his own opinions which had doubtlessly caused his success as a teacher, whilst I was too sure of my ground to fear defeat. The dusk fell, and lights faintly gleamed in some of the distant windows. But we did not move. Our seat on the tomb was very comfortable, and I knew that my prosaic friend would not mind the cavernous rift in the ancient, root-disturbed brickwork close behind us, or the utter blackness of the spot brought by the intervention of a tottering, deserted seventeenth-century house between us and the nearest lighted road. There, in the dark. Upon that riven tomb by the deserted house, we talked on about the unnameable. And after my friend had finished his scoffing, 
I told him of the awful evidence behind my story, at which he had scoffed the most. My tale had been called The Attic Window, and appeared in the January 1922 issue of Whispers. In a good many places, especially the South and the Pacific Coast, they took the magazines off the stands at the complaints of silly milksops. But New England didn't get the thrill, and merely shrugged its shoulders at my extravagance. The thing, it was averred, was biologically impossible to start with, merely another of those crazy country mutterings which Cotton Mather had been gullible enough to dump in his chaotic Magnalia Christi Americana, and so poorly authenticated that even he had not ventured to name the locality where the horror occurred. As to the way I amplified the bare jotting of the old mystic, that was quite impossible, and characteristic of a flighty and notional scribbler. Mather had indeed told of the thing as being born, but nobody but a cheap sensationalist would think of having it grow up look into people's windows at night, and be hidden in the attic of a house, in flesh and in spirit, till someone saw it at the window centuries later, and couldn't describe what it was that turned his hair grey. All this was flagrant trashiness, and my friend Manton was not slow to insist on the fact. Then... I told him what I had found in an old diary, kept between 1706 and 1723, unearthed among family papers not a mile from where we were sitting. That, and the certain reality of scars on my ancestor's chest and back, which the diary described. I told him, too, of the fears of others in that region, and how they were whispered down for generations and how no mythical madness came to the boy who, in 1793, entered an abandoned house to examine certain traces suspected to be there. It had been an eldritch thing. No wonder sensitive students shudder at the Puritan age in Massachusetts. So little is known of what went on beneath the surface. So little, yet such a ghastly festering as it bubbles up putrescently in occasional ghoulish glimpses. The witchcraft terror is a horrible ray of light on what was stewing in men's crushed brains. But even that is a trifle. There was no beauty, no freedom. We can see that from the architectural and household remains, and the poisonous sermons of the cramped divines. And inside that rusted iron straitjacket lurked gibbering hideousness, perversion, and diabolism. Here truly was the apotheosis of the unnameable. Cotton Mather, in that demoniac sixth book, which no one should read after dark, minced no words when he flung forth his anathema. Stern as a Jewish prophet, and laconically unamazed as none since his day could be, he told of the beast that had brought forth what was more beast but less than man, the thing with the blemished eye, 
and of the screaming drunken wretch that they hanged for having such an eye. This much he boldly told, yet without hint of what came after. Perhaps he did not know, or perhaps he knew, and did not dare tell. Others knew, but did not dare tell. There is no public hint of why they whispered about the lock on the door to the attic stairs in the house of a childless, broken, embittered old man who had put up a blank slate slab by an avoided grave. Although one may trace enough evasive legends to curdle the thinnest blood. It is all in the ancestral diary I found. All the hushed innuendos and furtive tales of things with a blemished eye, seen at windows in the night, or in deserted meadows near the woods. Something caught my ancestor on a dark valley road, leaving him with marks of horns on his chest, and of ape-like claws on his back. And when they looked for prints in the trampled dust, they found the mixed marks of split hooves and vaguely anthropoid paws. Once a post-rider said he saw an old man chasing and calling to a frightful, loping, nameless thing on Meadow Hill in the thinly moonlit hours before dawn, and many believed him. Certainly there was strange talk one night in 1710, when the childless broken old man was buried in the crypt behind his old house, in sight of the blank slate slab. They never unlocked the attic door, but left the whole house as it was, dreaded and deserted. When noises came from it, they whispered and shivered, and hoped that the lock on the attic door was strong. Then they stopped hoping when the horror occurred at the parsonage, leaving not a soul alive, or in one piece. With the years, the legends take on a spectral character. I suppose the thing, if it was a living thing, must have died. The memory had lingered hideously, all the more hideous because it was so secret. During this narration, my friend Manton had become very silent, and I saw that my words had impressed him. He did not laugh as I paused, but asked quite seriously about the boy who went mad in 1793, and who had presumably been the hero of my fiction. I told him why the boy had gone to that shunned, deserted house, and remarked he ought to be interested since he believed that windows retained latent images of those who had sat at them. The boy had gone to look at the windows of that horrible attic, because of tales of things seen behind them, and had come back screaming maniacally. Manton remained thoughtful as I said this, but gradually reverted to his analytical mood. He granted, for the sake of argument, that some unnatural monster had really existed, but reminded me that even the most morbid perversion of nature need not be unnameable or scientifically indescribable. I admired his clearness and persistence. 
and added some further revelations I had collected among the old people. Those later spectral legends, I made plain, related to monstrous apparitions more frightful than anything organic could be. Apparitions of gigantic bestial forms, sometimes visible, sometimes only tangible, which floated about on moonless nights and haunted the old house, the crypt behind it, and the grave where a sapling had sprouted beside an illegible slab. Whether or not such apparitions had ever gored or smothered people to death, as told in uncorroborated traditions, they had produced a strong and consistent impression, and were yet darkly feared by very aged natives, though largely forgotten by the last two generations, perhaps dying for lack of being thought about. Moreover, so far as ascetic theory was involved, if the psychic animations of human creatures be grotesque distortions, what coherent representation could express or portray so gibbous and infamous a nebulosity as the spectre of a malign chaotic perversion, itself a morbid blasphemy against nature, moulded by the dead brain of a hybrid nightmare? Would not such a vaporous terror constitute, in all loathsome truth, the exquisitely, the shriekingly unnameable? The hour must have now grown very late. A singularly noiseless bat brushed by me, and I believe it touched Manton also, for although I could not see him, I felt him raise his arm. Presently he spoke. But is the house with the attic window still standing and deserted? Yes, I answered. I have seen it. And did you find anything there, in the attic, or anywhere else? There were some bones up under the eaves. They may have been what the boy saw. If he was sensitive, he wouldn't have needed anything in the window glass to unhinge him. If they all came from the same object, it must have been an hysterical, delirious monstrosity. It would have been blasphemous to leave such bones in the world. So I went back with a sack and took them to the tomb behind the house. There was an opening where I could dump them in. Don't think I was a fool. You ought to have seen that skull. It had four inch horns, but a face and jaw. Something like yours and mine. At last, I could feel a real shudder run through Manton, who had moved very near. But his curiosity was undeterred. What about the window panes? They were all gone. One window had lost its entire frame, and in the other there was not a trace of glass in the little diamond apertures. They were that kind. The old lattice windows that went out of use before seventeen hundred. I don't believe they've had any glass for a hundred years or more. Maybe the boy broke 'em if he got that far. The legend doesn't say. Manton was reflecting again. I'd like to see that house, Carter. Where is it? Glass or no glass, I must explore it a little.
and the tomb where you put those bones, and the other grave without an inscription. The whole thing must be a bit terrible. You did see it, until it got dark. My friend was more wrought upon than I had suspected, for at this touch of harmless theatricalism, he started neurotically away from me, and actually cried out with a sort of gulping gasp, which released a strain of previous repression. It was an odd cry, and all the more terrible, because it was answered. For as it was still echoing, I heard a creaking sound through the pitchy blackness, and knew that a lattice window was opening in that accursed old house beside us. And because all the other frames had long since fallen, I knew it was the grisly, glassless frame of that demoniac attic window. Then came a noxious rush of noisome, frigid air from that same dreaded direction, followed by a piercing shriek just beside me on that shocking rifted tomb of man and monster. In another instant, I was knocked from my gruesome bench by the devilish threshing of some unseen entity of titanic size but undetermined nature, knocked sprawling on the root-clutched mould of that abhorrent graveyard, while from the tomb came such a stifled roar of gasping and whirring that my fancy peopled the rayless gloom with miltonic legions of the misshapen damned. There was a vortex of withering, ice-cold air, and then the rattle of loose bricks and plaster. But I had mercifully fainted before I could learn what it meant. Manton, though smaller than I, is more resilient, for we opened our eyes at almost the same instant, despite his greater injuries. Our couches were side by side, and we knew in a few seconds that we were in St. Mary's Hospital. Attendants were grouped about in tense curiosity, eager to aid our memory by telling us how we came there. And we soon heard of the farmer who had found us at noon in a lonely field beyond Meadow Hill, a mile from the old burying ground, on a spot where an ancient slaughterhouse is reputed to have stood. Manton had two malignant wounds in the chest, and some less severe cuts or gougings in the back. I was not so seriously hurt, but was covered with welts and contusions of the most bewildering character, including the print of a split hoof. It was plain Manton knew more than I, but he told nothing to the puzzled and interested physicians till he learned what our injuries were. Then he said we were victims of a vicious bull, though the animal was a difficult thing to place and account for. After the doctors and nurses had left, I whispered an awestruck question. Good God, Manton! But what was it? Those scars! Was it like that? And I was too dazed to exult when he whispered back, a thing I had half expected. No, it wasn't that way at all.
It was everywhere. A gelatin. Slime. Yet it had shapes. A thousand shapes of horror beyond all memory. There were eyes. And a blemish. The pit. It was the pit. The maelstrom. The ultimate abomination. Carter. It was the unnameable. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm Paul. Hi, I'm Jim. And we're going to talk about The Unnameable, a short story by H.P. Lovecraft from uh, the July 1925 issue of Weird Tales. And uh, I I thought, I I haven't read this story before, but I have. I think I've read all of them now, and it's just, um, for some reason it didn't stick with me. I guess because it was sort of a dismissible story in my mind. Because I thought it was a joke, and it, I think it is a joke, but actually, I think uh, I was reading a forum online, and uh, there's an author named Pugmire who um, who wrote about it, and he said, yeah, the more it's his favorite, one of his favorite stories, and the more you read it, the more you like it, the more it expands, and I think that that's true, because I, I like it even more than I did the first couple of times I read it for this show if that makes any sense well yeah there's always a, I think there's always a learning curve sort of with Lovecraft when you mm. I think when everyone starts reading Lovecraft you're looking for the, the big name drops you know Arkham Necronomicon mm. Cthulhu and if a story isn't addressing the mythos as it were you, you tend to go oh it's second league stuff <laughs> and if it's early stuff in one of his early shorts it's kind of he's like oh you hadn't you hadn't got into gear yet but mm-hmm. i mean I, certainly i found when you go back to these early short stories it's kind of there's actually you know a hell of a lot in them <laughs> mm-hmm. and and this one i went back to it a couple of years ago it's kind of actually this there's all kinds of references and tie-ins and allusions just Chocked in a very short story indeed. Very short story. Paul, you've read this before, I assume. I I had I had not quite remembered it. It came mm-hmm. into stronger focus when I when I read and listened to Mr. Moon's reading of it again. Like, oh yeah, this is the meta story. Mm-hmm. And that's that's what I, I take away again from this. This is this is a story where Lovecraft really inserts himself into his own fiction in a way he doesn't elsewhere i mean even if carter is kind of what he'd wish to be the the real carter not the early carter here and it's like oh he's like arguing no no really i'm 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 right about stuff being stuff being beyond our canon there's things we can't know and shouldn't know he's he's basically having a literary argument mm-hmm. in this story about his own fiction before he's written the bulk of it, since it was written in 1925, which is a very weird... It's almost like uh, someone from the great race of Yith had read all his fiction, <laughs> came back in time, and got him to write this story before he actually wrote the rest of his sto- fiction. Yeah. That makes sense? Yeah. No, Definitely, I think, yes. Yeah. yeah, that's true. Uh, in fact, um, it is it is remarkable that it is him defending his own fiction so early. Um, I mean, yeah, he had written a lot of stuff, I guess, in the short period of years before this, but it seems like a, uh, a defense that would come a little later. Yeah. Yeah. If you, if you, if you had somebody 
knew and didn't tell them it was in it was written in 1925, they would guess it would be late Lovecraft, not early Lovecraft. I I quite I quite like uh, the more I think about it, the more I like it, and I've been going. Uh, I I was going to say play test, but that's uh, what Paul does, right? I I, I don't uh, I don't play test my stories, but I do read them with my students, and we're we're going through a lot of the stories by Lovecraft because the great thing is, you know, every paragraph has ten or twelve vocab words that they've never <laughs> heard before, and then reading the next story, you get you know seven or eight of them, and then you read the next one, and you, you've got all of the 12 you've got before and you've got six more right so there it's good for that but they're nice and short which is good too but the other thing is is you can see totally the resonances um between stories you know what he's interested in if we we read philip k dick stories back to back that it has the same effect you know what he's interested in you know he's got weird relationship with children and women right lovecraft doesn't have the relationship with children and women but he has uh relationships with the night and architecture and um sort of the the word that i i kept trying to figure out what the word i needed to describe this story i guess the numinous something like that one of those mm-hmm. yes, high-level yeah. vocab words that he doesn't himself use, but which a lot of spiritual folks or religious folks would use to describe exactly what he's talking about here. In sort of a, I mean, it's a it's a fake, <laughs> fake and also legit defense against uh, the arguments that are marshaled against him, which are, you know. Come on, we live in a world of science. Anything that exists uh, can be categorized and named, and mm-hmm. um, and yeah, we can get the names wrong. I I, I was uh, listening to somebody. Uh, oh, it was uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson talking about why uh, dark matter was such a stupid name for what dark matter is supposed to represent. Um, and it's true; it gets people really screwed up. It makes them think that there's something called there's there's this matter that we can't see when in fact we assume it's matter because matter is what has gravity right but there's mm-hmm. no evidence that there's actual matter there so you know the idea of dark energy that's at least it sounds like one of these unnameable undescribable unknown things and uh-huh. and so that is something he really does deal with and and the way he treats it here, it's semi-serious, and then it turns out to be a joke at the end. But in rereading, you sort of think, oh, no, you know, he is talking about something that is, it, it's, you know, it's a scare story, but it's also uh, very interesting. Like, just thinking about how, how do you have this relationship, like, the way it's, it, somebody said it was you know, the way he, or, oh, yeah, it was Mr. Jimoon on your podcast. He was talking about the orchestration uh, mm-hmm. of the of the vocabulary, the employment. And I was just thinking, you know, when that scene with the, when the, the night starts coming down and it becomes dark and you can't see the building that they were right next to. And then a bat comes and it touches him, uh, Carter, and it touches Manton. 
And that's um that's the beginning of it, right? You assume it's a bat. Must have been a bat. But maybe it That's was. hilarious in the movie, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I, I was <laughs> delighted that they actually have the bat in the movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. It's 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 actually incredibly faithful in in many respects. Um uh, both the the nineteen eighty eight uh, feature film and, and the short story have elements that are incredibly faithful to the story. Uh, which is very difficult considering it's just a story of two guys sitting on a tomb having a conversation and then uh, talking about it, what happened in the hospital. Yeah, I mean, the, the amount of actual actions in the actual short story is very slight. It's mainly just these guys debating the nature of what can be described versus science, science versus horror and and evoking lots of things, but in the end, they're just sitting there in the tomb chatting, really. It's, it's a, it, it, I mean, again, again, that's again, again, that's Lovecraft as people read it, not as Lovecraft as some people just think of it. I mean, the, the, the non Lovecraftian, okay, is that a word? Um, who thinks of Lovecraft thinks, oh yeah, it's, the story is all about battling monsters and all this stuff, but there's really a, a lot, his stories are really much more, talkative and reading and thinking-y than actual two-fisted action. I mean, Pope Cthulhu is not really the thing. Mm-hmm. And this story kind of shows it where they're just where they're just spinning this stuff out when the actual stuff that actually hap- happens happens is is mercifully short. But they I'm, I'm, like, I want to read this paragraph. I know Jim already wrote, read it on his, par- on his own, but... I got some I want to read, too, so go yeah, for it. Uh, yeah, okay. So this... this it, it's talking about some of the stuff that had happened uh, at Meadow Hill. So it is all in that ancestral diary I found. All the hush innuendos and furtive tales of things with a blemished eye seen at windows in the night or in deserted meadows near the woods. Something had caught my ancestor on a dark valley road, leaving him with marks of horns on his chest and of ape-like claws on his back. When they had looked for prints in the trampled dust, they found the mixed marks of split hooves and vaguely anthropoid pause there's your vocabulary word again mm-hmm. jesse mm-hmm. once a post writer said he had saw an old man chasing a calling to a frightful loping nameless thing on meadow hill in the thinly moonlit hours before dawn and many believed him and it goes on and on describing the dark things that supposedly had happened there were stories anyway and it's just this is the kind of evocation that lovecraft would turn more fully to full mythos on action later on but here it's here before he's really gotten the mythos under his feet it's just more new england puritanical horror i believe is the way uh ruthanna emery's described it when she wrote about this story on mm-hmm. tour a couple of years ago mm-hmm. actually uh and that's one of the passages i marked but not not to read but more that's that's the one where both i and my students uh, came up with uh, a theory <laughs> of <laughs> what theory who, who it who it is or what it is um, other than you know uh, the cotton mather story um, we had read I guess uh, a few weeks ago or a month ago a story called the tree which is uh, one of my favorites it's really short it's a, it's a mystery story um, 
It's got a twist sort of mur- uh, hidden murder in it. Um, it's a wonderful story. And um, it has Pan m- explicitly mentioned. Mm-hmm. And, of course, <laughs> we've got Pan virtually described as the one element of at least one aspect of the unnameable creature. Um, so it says, just where you said, the mark of horns on his chest, ape-like claws on the back, and uh, mixed marks of split hooves. Right? right? That's Pan. Or something like it, a fawn, right? A fawn. Yeah. Um, a, cre- a, cre- a, cre- a creature of indiscriminate wild sexuality and power, again, going, exactly. uh, going again, a, a dagger at the heart of puritanical New England. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's well, the, there's also the origin of panic is exactly. from Pan. Yeah, actually, uh, the it, feeling it of absolute it, terror in the wilderness. It isn't Pan actually mentioned in the in the story of um, of the tree. It's the Peniski, right? The the sort of the multiplied entity of pan and and exactly that the the idea of the panic of the herd or in this case the <laughs> the um the troubling uh representation that they're given at the end of the story right or that manton it's like what are they doing in the hospital well, they seem to have been attacked. What were they attacked by? They were attacked by a bull, a very yes, a masculine, powerful creature. Um, mm-hmm. In a sense, this is a rape story, right? Two guys are out in the woods and are out, out, out in the edge of town, and um, they're in the hospital, and they one of them says, I don't remember what happened. And the other one says, you don't want it. It was unnameable. We'll never speak of this again. <laughs> Sort of thing. <laughs> um, it's it's uh, you know you you think well that's going a little far, Jesse. But um, if you if you look at the um, the uh, I can't believe I'm saying this, but if you look at the uh, Cotton <laughs> Mather um, story, right, which I, I I found the original document on archive.org or not document the original. Um, Published man, uh, published book, and I guess you quote it in your own show, Mister Jim Moon. Um, you know yeah, the one I guess. mean. At um, the Southwood, there was a beast which brought forth a creature which might pretend unto something of a human shape. Now the people minded that such a monster had a blemish in one eye, much like what a prolific fellow in the town was known to have. This fell upon was this fellow was hereupon examined and upon his examination confessed his infamous bestialities <gasps> for which he was deservedly executed. Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. And I, I love that the document has those F's as S's, you know. I don't understand how it works, because sometimes they use the regular S and sometimes they use the F. There must be some rhyme or reason to it. No, the the spe- spelling like that back in the 17th century had not been quite as regularized as it was by the 19th. So, well, uh, some, but sometimes, like at the beginning of uh, at the beginning of a word, they'll use a ca- regular capital S. Mm. I think yeah. it might be a spacing thing, like they're trying to fit more stuff on the line or something. I'm not sure because uh, you know, like if you're if you're looking at the actual document, 
the line uh, upon his examination confessed his infinite infanidus bestialities. So <laughs> confessed um, has a regular S, infanidus has a regular S, but bestialities has an F. Um, oh, and also an S. So there's there's some rhyme or reason to it, but just seeing it in the actual document and thinking like Jesus, Lovecraft, he. No, I mean, he's talking about a story that he didn't actually write, right? He creates a backstory for this story that uh-huh. there is an the attic window, which uh, I think might even be a story by Ambrose Bierce, or maybe it's just the window. But there, it, you know, it's it's a a story published in a particular magazine that didn't exist and now does. <laughs> Somebody <laughs> made a magazine called the uh, called Whispers because of this story. Mm. Um, There's also the uh, the Gable Window by right. uh, August Derleth, which mm-hmm. um, he he co-credited with Lovecraft because uh, he filched the idea from a line in one of Lovecraft's commonplace books, right. as was the case with most of his um, um, collaborations. Mm-hmm. So just seeing seeing that element of it having um, <laughs> having these two men, uh, you know, hanging out in the in the graveyard talking late into the night. Um, ha- having the element of of the um, uh, of the sort of a cruel joke also on the part of Carter, in that you know I'm going to tell you this ghost story in defense of my ghost stories, um, and then having the, the 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 house. Oh yes, it's the one you used to be able to see right behind you. <gasps> and then at that that very point, right when he he lets out a gasp um that seems to precipitate uh the event right the, it's the it's like w- carter apparently isn't afraid until and maybe he isn't afraid at all throughout the story it's it'd be like lovecraft being afraid of his own writing it's only the effect of, on manton that is really disturbing, isn't it? Well, yes, we never actually get Carter's reaction to Manton's revelation at the end. I mean, the last time coming, and Carter laughed, saying, ha, 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 I told you so. (laughs) Got you! (laughs) There's none of that. (laughs) Um, No, he says, I was dazed, uh, too dazed to exult, (laughs) which is kind of a <laughs> saying I couldn't I was too like surprised to say I told you so <laughs> no but 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 he says no but I think Carter is kind of uh scared because he says I whispered an awestruck question that's an interesting adjective mm. there good god Manton but what was it those scars was it like that and then he's two days to exult when he whispered back the thing so he's ki- so Carter, I think, is in shock still himself, just as Manton is by this unnameable, undescribable experience. Well, yeah, except when he, he says, like that, we could interpret that in a couple of ways. One, we can interpret it as, as uh, was it like my memory or our collective shared memory? Let's compare memories. Um, but uh, I do believe that um, Manton was awake for, or I don't think 
Carter has much of a memory of what happened, right? Whereas I think Manton does. And more importantly, right before that, Manton had lied to the doctor saying that um, they had been attacked by a particularly vicious bull. So <laughs> if, if, if he's whispering to, to Manton, um, was it like that? Um, it's like, is that really what happened? Um, or, you know, like, I'm not going to call you out on this, but, uh, were you lying to me? Are you lying to the doctors? Who, what was it like? Uh, I mean, in an earlier age, right? This would be, uh, you know, the stuff that turns into a urban legend, right? Or a countryside folklore story. Two men are attacked on the side of the road, and um, and what was it that attacked them? <laughs> it's interesting. Um, in fact, there's a story called What Was It um, by Fitzjames O'Brien. Um, you know that story? Yes, yes. Yeah, oh, yes. I think mm-hmm. that that's a really interesting one now that I think about it to compare because it starts with the same sort of idea that there's this haunted place. Um, people been um, harassed by an unseen demonic force of some kind. And... And it goes the other other way, right? Yeah, it turns out to be an invisible being. It's not a ghost. It's a being that's invisible. And they do practically everything but name it, right? Mm-hmm. And in the end, uh, it, it has that what was it effect. But we actually physically, like, look, we can, even though it's invisible, they, like, put plaster casts over it to try and map its shape and figure out what it was. Uh, a, a very similar story that Lovecraft later wrote is um, the shunned house, mm-hmm. where you have a similar haunted place where everyone is there, sickened and died. And it, I mean that that is actually a more a rare instance of a, a very two fisted Lovecraftian oh. tale because yeah. <clears throat> we have you know the, our, our hero, pair of investigating heroes actually you know research the place they uncover again sort of this kind of New England folklore of an old French family. Who, assorted baddens in it who practice diabolism and they raise something that is still haunting the place and in the end that they, they have set two with it with flamethrowers wow yeah that yeah the call of cthulhu game really jazzes on that sort of story like okay the investigators get their weapons together and we go try to kill the lovecraft the beasties <laughs> well so this is much, yeah well this is more i think pure sort of true to um quoting one of Lovecraft's letters where he says, I'm not so much interested in writing about a castle that is home to a conclave of demons, more that there is a castle where there are rumours that there Mm. are conclaves of demons. And here we have the kind of, we have Carter's story where we have this physical, you know, monster locked in a house. But then, you know, the monster appears to have died, and yet there's still something of it out and about. Yeah, and he talks so this idea of it being it's not just a monster, it's the ghost of a monster. Right. <laughs> yeah. That's still haunting the place. In fact, the, yeah, the, the, go ahead. The, the, that that sc- sort of gasp of oh, 
horror when uh, Manton is told that it's it's the house just you know, behind you. It doesn't actually say behind <laughs> you, but you could have seen it a minute ago when the light was still with mm. us. Um, <laughs> th- there is a almost instantaneous um, relationship between the window of the house being opened or something like that, and then also on the tomb that they're sitting on or sitting very nearby. And uh, I, I've sort of overdosed on versions of this story, so I'm not 100% clear on which, w- w- what is actually, actually happening here. But doesn't, in the story, doesn't Carter say that, yes, he himself has investigated the house, he found some bones mm-hmm. within it, Yep. there was a skull yep. uh, with horns, mm-hmm. um, which he has planted, which he has put uh, in a tomb. Um. Uh, or in the graveyard, and maybe, uh, like, I think the unsaid thing is that it's actually the tomb they're sitting on. Well, yes, because it's just when he reveals that it's the house, then you have the creak that sounds like the opening of a window, mm-hmm. and quote, a noxious <laughs> rush of noisome, frigid air from the same dreaded direction. Yep. And uh, that's, that's, that's when it sort of kicks off, as it were. But it does mention, you know, followed by a piercing shriek just beside me on that shocking rifted tomb of man and monster, mm-hmm. which I always take that had he not been interrupted, that was that was Carter's sucker punch, and that oh. tomb, it's this one, right? <laughs> you know, <laughs> classic, classic campfire tale, uh, totally. you know, fashion. Yeah. And that man is sitting beside you. <laughs> right. Um Yeah, but yeah, but his, his his whole little setup is screwed up because something actually happens. I mean, Carter's setting up setting up to scare his friend, but in the end there there really something happened and Carter's sucker punch as uh Jim said gets uh canceled by the real event. Uh, I'm not it's sure. a kind of inverse Scooby-Doo ending, really. <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> you uh, rip off the face and no, it's not old man Marston. It's really a monster. We're, we're attributing um, sort of a malice to Carter that is not, strictly speaking, evident in the story. I think a, a more charitable way of putting it would be no matter where they went to have their conversation, whether it be uh, this particular burying ground outside of Arkham or anywhere he went in Lovecraft country, he would have been able to um, spin up a story that would have had a similar effect. I, I, I think that, that that's also possible because I, I, yeah, sorry. I might, I might, I might, might be uh, bleeding some of the film versions of yeah. Carter's personality into the story. And that's not fair. Yeah. The, the different, one of one of the things I really liked about the short film. Did you get a chance to see that, Paul? Um, the sh- no, I only saw the, like the hour and a half one. Okay, so um, what what's the is it the Shadow of the Unnameable? Is that what it's called, Mister? Yes, Kramer? that's it. Yes. So uh, this is it's a strange movie because it it's sixteen minutes long. It's pretty faithful in some respects. It also, you know, has a different ending. Um, has has uh. <laughs> I, I think some of the actors have German accents. <laughs> I, I think I think they're supposed. I think it's supposed to be. Yeah, it's set in New England, but I think it was probably filmed in Germany. What do you think? Yeah, it was a German production. Yes. Yeah. So uh, the nurse had a uh, what I would uh, the hint of a 
German accent and maybe even one of the, uh, maybe even um, Manton or even Carter. <laughs> it's possible. Um, and the Germans, they love Lovecraft. And uh, the, one of the things I really liked about it that um, isn't played up as much in the story, but I guess is there, is the aspect of the animals. You know how there's the slugs or the snails in the mm-hmm. film? And there's the butterfly or moss. And, of course, that's the bat in the story, right, is the one that it draws in. But at night, um, I've had experiences with bats. It's surprising. You don't know what it is at first, right? <laughs> it Because it's not a bird. It's flying. It's fast. It's small. Um, it has these weird weird texture to it um and it's not uh malicious exactly but it 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 seems like it's attacking you right whether it's confused or uh, i'm not sure how how bats <laughs> we we have this idea that bats get tangled up in women's hair right <laughs> <laughs> i'm not sure where that comes from but that almost happens in the film right that the, yeah. the bat flies into the guy and then he throws it to the other guy and then it flies away <laughs> um, in a very humorous um, sort of just spooky uh, effect. Um, but just being like brushed by a bat at night, that would be freaky if you don't know that it's a bat. <laughs> I don't I, I don't know. I think it's it's cool. It sets us up for what happens in a moment. And so that idea of it being pan, I think, doesn't pan out um, once we actually get the description, right? Um, The final description, it was, there there were eyes, doesn't say how many, there were eyes and a blemish. Is that a blemish in the eye? It was, it was the pit. And that's an interesting description. The maelstrom, which is also evocative. The ultimate abomination. It was the unnameable. It had shapes, a gelatin, a slime. It was everywhere. That sounds like a saga to me. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's sort of not descri- describable as one particular thing. But it also, it's the ghost of a, it's the ghost of a Penisky of some. I mean, what 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 is going on in that original Cotton Mather story, right? If we try and make sense of that, it's and then yeah. Well, so then from the days of Cotton Mather, it's kind of. Um, I mean, this was an age where um, I mean, in Great Britain, there is um, a type of barnacle called the goose barnacle. Mm-hmm. And when it, you know, extends, it has this long white neck and a pointed yellow head that looks like a beak. And people assume that that's where geese came from. <laughs> and, you know, the, the kind of 16th century is in this mindset of um, what you can call it, the laws of sympathy. The idea that light goes right. to like accordingly and that things that have a resemblance, um, you know, must be related. Hence, you know, 
you know, you've all heard the old pirate cliche talk about sea dogs. Right. Me hearties. You know, what sea dogs were originally were seals. Right. They, you know, they thought they were some hybrid of dog and fish. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because that's what they look like. And, you know, that's kind of the way they work. And therefore, if you, you know, you have a strange misshapen thing that isn't quite, you know, isn't quite the animal it's supposed to be, it's because some other animal that shouldn't be lying with it has lain with it <laughs> right and it has a blemished eye and this um a man who bothers farmyard animals with a blemished eye well look no further <laughs> oh my god you know it's it's kind of the you know the idea that's kind of i mean they played up in game of thrones with the idea of different families you know they all have a certain color hair and you know if you have a child who's got a different color hair to his father well maybe his daddy ain't his daddy mm-hmm. yeah um there's a uh, I think it's Ring of Bright Water. Um, I think that's the name of it. It's a novel um, that <laughs> has a really great scene where a man um, has a pet uh, seal. I think it's a seal. Is um, it an otter? Is it- uh, maybe it's an otter. Yeah, that's mm. right. It's an otter, and he he get he goes on the train, and he says, "No, no wild animals allowed on here." <laughs> says the train master or whatever and he says oh no he's not a wild animal he's a dog and he says well i've never seen the like of him he says oh he's a diving terrier <laughs> 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 oh hmm. i never recognized those before but yeah uh, it's a great a <laughs> great little bit <laughs> um and at some point you know we domesticate whatever uh wild creature is going on um <laughs> I want to also point out that in the film, the unnameable has a name in the original 88 film, right? It's Elida. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, and I think it, it it's very, I mean, uh, watching the film, it's very dismissible. And then as you rewatch it, you start liking the movie more and more and more. Um, I, I've seen it three times now, I think. And uh, yeah, it's got all the hallmarks of a very cheap production you know it is so 80s with the hair and the characters 80s hair but the number of like i was thinking like you look around the campus and there's almost no students (laughs) there's a there's a couple of scenes where yeah there's three people in the library maybe four (laughs) but uh just walking around the campus uh they've got to be like Wow, we can't afford any more actors. Um, and, you know, there's only one shot showing the Miskatonic University. Um, at least we, we get the one shot there. Um, it, and the house that the majority of the story is set in is, as you say, Mr. Jim Moon, on, on your show, uh, it's underdressed, right? <laughs> yeah. It's very like a stage set, isn't it? Oh my. <laughs> I mean, just the lingering shots on the staircase as they, as they walk up the staircase and like, yeah, that's not really a staircase. <laughs> yeah. It's, not, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's old it's, doctor who with one tenth of the budget of the old doctor, mm. which is saying not a lot. Uh, there's a great I, scene where, where where Howard bangs on a door and the entire wall moves as well. Yeah. <laughs> but very similarly, they they start moving a tombstone. Oh yeah, I was yeah. And it's on I, one side of it as they pull it down, it's it, it's obviously like three pieces of wood that have been stapled together. Yeah, <laughs> and then in the next shot, have oh, they flipped it over so it looks actually like it's made of stone. Um 
But in the uh, in the story proper, uh, there is a, a slab with no name on it, right? Um, that the the owner of the house. Do we have a name for him? We don't, do we? The owner of the house, whose house is right next to this burying ground, um, built a a uh, tomb for. Am I am I taking this from a different a different version of the story? Isn't there a blank slate? I think it's actually literally says blank slate in here. Yes. Um. Uh, there is no public hint to why they whistled about the lock on the door of the attic stairs in the house of a childish, broken, embittered old man who had put up a blank slate slab by an avoided mm-hmm. grave. Though right. one may trace enough events of legends to curl the thinnest blood. So, and then they mention later again, blank slate slab later on in the story. That's right. too. It's, yeah. it's in there twice. Mm-hmm. Now, yeah. one, one of the things, I mean, I don't think Lovecraft is that's you know, sloppy that he accidentally put in blank slate twice i think that one of the things that is nicely drawn out in that 88 film and it does give it a sort of a heart um that is absent uh or at least minimized in the story proper is that the blank slate has a particular meaning in the theory of child raising right the idea that you've got Mm -hmm. a, a child who you can do anything with um any particular the, the idea is that minds are ultimately completely moldable so if you if you beat your child you, you'll grow up with a child of a certain way if you educate your child you come up with a child of another way if you uh only school them in particular religious books and don't school them in mathematics then you can control their destiny based on the fact that they are quote unquote blank slates tabula rasas mm. right yep and in this case, we've got a child who is locked up in a, an attic and not even given a name. And then in the film, with her given a name and the, uh, the father, I, is that the father? Is that who we're, who it's supposed to be? I guess it's it the, is father the father in the film. Yeah. In, in, there's a second movie, there's a sequel where you get a bit more of the backstory. Mm-hmm. And it's a, a father had been monkeying about with the uh, Necronomicon, ah. and uh, had worked out that the uh, the formula in the Necronomicon, you know, are actually you know scientific formula. They're equations to open up portals. And in monkeying about, he'd opened up a portal, and his wife had been possessed by a being from we best not speculate where. And that's a direct <laughs> quote from the film. <laughs> and uh, essentially, his daughter is. Um, they have an interesting idea that she's a human child, but she is coterminous with another being. And they have this wonderful hokey scene where they examine her blood and there's ordinary red blood cells, but these like strange gray ones that exist in the same space and are passing through the red blood cells. And in the second, they do a ritual and actually separate the monstrous being and the human girl from with her, with her formula from the Necronomicon. This is, this is very much, um, Sort of another ask. This is one of those things where when you do uh, read a lot of Lovecraft, you see the themes coming up again and again. This is a, sort of a retelling of the Dunwich horror, right? In mm-hmm. a certain respect, mm-hmm. um, you've got the child locked up in the attic, um, 
It's got strange appetites. Um, if it's not named, uh, is that because uh, the father didn't give it a name, or it's because the name's unpronounceable, or what have you? I also want to point out that the um, the tomb on which they are uh, sitting, mm-hmm. it's not... Uh, there might be something else going on here. I'm going to just read this section. Looking towards the giant willow in the center of the cemetery, whose trunk nearly engulfed an ancient illegible slab, I had made a fantastic remark about the spectral and unmentionable nourishment which the colossal roots must be sucking in from that hoary charnel earth. When my friend chided me for the nonsense and told me that since no internments had occurred there for over a century, nothing could possibly exist to nourish the tree in other than an ordinary manner. Mm. Um, so the the fact that there's, it says it's a illegible, um, is that the same as a, bl- a blank? No, it is not. No, it's not. But uh, one might misinterpret it that way, right? Uh, this tombstone is blank. Um, no, it's not. It's illegible. It used to have writing on it. It's worn away by the elements or what what have you. So th- there's that aspect. I also want to point out that, that that scene where we have a tomb with a tree growing out of it is specifically in the story of the tree. Mm-hmm. That's that's mm. the tree in this in the story. It's it's uh, um, was it a willow in that tree? No, it was an olive in the in that in yes yeah. So there's an and and that particular uh, tree grows from some sticks planted at the request of the uh, of the artist into the head of the of the grave. Um, he also doesn't specifically request to have a tomb, but the tomb is built anyways, and then it grows up to a height that can eventually. Uh, form the shape of a man with an arm outstretched over the artist's studio in, so that he can, cra- <laughs> yeah. he can crush it and get his revenge. Um, the, so the idea of a, of a colossal living creature sucking nourishment and then taking on aspects of the, um, of the, the dead is, is something we see again and again in Lovecraft. In fact, I've got a poem um, that I was reading not too long ago called The House that has that explicitly in it. Um, it could be that this is the same house. <laughs> um, well, so, well, maybe not. It's, it goes like this. It's called The House. Tis a grove circle dwelling set close to a hill where the branches are telling strange legends of ill over timbers so old that they breathe of the dead crawl the vines green and cold by strange nourishment fed. And no man knows the juices they suck from the depths of their dank, slimy bed. That's just the first stanza. But um, in the terrific illustration from Weird Tales um, that it surrounds the poem, um, at the top we've got uh, spirits rising up, including the vaporous um, spirits from the house itself and from the vines. And following the vines down it leads straight into a coffin <laughs> <laughs> um and uh below the house 
Um, it's not explicitly mentioned in the poem, but there is a burying ground. And it's, it's really terrific. Uh, I, I just love seeing these themes again and again where he sort of magnifies, Lovecraft magnifies some aspect of a thing that was really striking to him, right? Seeing, I think, isn't there a real house, uh, in the story you mentioned? Um, uh, yes, the uh, the shunned house was an actual place he was familiar with, and that had oh. a tree growing out of mm. the out of the basement, mm. wasn't it? Mm. I believe so. Yes, yeah. Uh, so there's also in the uh, fungi from yoga shogger um, sonnet cycle, shogger cycle. Monster obsessed. <laughs> Sorry. Um, there's also uh, one of the sonnets, the Howler, which oh, always yes. reminds me of the name of all. They told me not to take the Briggs Hill path that used to be the high road through to Zor. For Goody Wantkins, hung in 17.4, had left a certain monstrous aftermath. Yet when I disobeyed and had in view the vine-hung cottage by the great rock slope, I could not think of elms or hempen rope, but wondered why the house still seemed so new. Stopping a while to watch the fading day, I heard faint howls as from a room upstairs when through the ivied panes one sunset ray struck in and caught the howler unawares. <laughs> I glimpsed and ran in frenzy from the place and from a four-pawed thing with human face. Mm. <laughs> I love that one. Yeah, it's really good. I love that one. Um, I, I do have a section I want to read here as well. Let me see. This... Uh, I just uh, when we read these out loud uh, in my classes, um, there's some some of the sentences they're just like ordinary sentences, but then there's others that you know he combines together so many words that it it, it they are it is spellcasting right. Um, mm. <laughs> I in collecting all these books that have all these Lovecraft stories in them, they become the things that the characters have. <laughs> yeah. okay. I've got a, you know, a volume of the weird writings of HP Lovecraft. I've got, it's actually two volumes, but uh, one of them's quite thin and the other one's a big, thick, thick thing that I paid $200 for. And it's, it's, uh, it's just ridiculously uh, rich with illustrations from weird tales, but <laughs> they're spell casting books, literally. Um, because they put a spell over you and they transform your experience of the everyday into, I don't know, the way Lovecraft sees the world or the dream world anyways. So here's a couple of sentences like that. This is on page 80 of the, uh, uh, original Weird Tales publication. Um, it had been an eldritch thing. No wonder sensitive students shudder at the Puritan age in Massachusetts. So little is known of what went on beneath the surface, so little. Yet such a ghastly festering as it bubbles up putrescently in occasional ghoulish glimpses. The witchcraft terror is a horrible ray of light on what was stewing in men's crushed brains. But even that is a trifle. There was no beauty, no freedom. We can see that from the, we can see that from the architectural and household remains, and the poisonous sermons of the cramped divines, and inside that rusted iron straitjacket lurked the gibbering hideous perversion and diabolism. 
here truly was the apotheosis of the unnameable. (laughs) 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 And I read through that and say, what the hell does that mean? And I'm trying to break it down and I'm thinking like some of this is actually from Manton's point of view and some of it's from Carter's point of view and then all of it's from Lovecraft's point of view. Right. So that first part um, about sort of the witchcraft terror was a horrible ray of light on what was doing in man's crushed brains. That seems more Manton. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's uh, the there was no beauty, no freedom. We can see from the architectural and household remains and the poisonous sermons of the cramped divines that could be from either of them. But then the last uh, in the inside that rusted iron straitjacket lurked the gibbering hideous perversion and diabolism. That that's more uh, Carter. And then here truly was the apotheosis of the unnameable. That is, that's sort of the whole point of the story, which is Lovecraft, <laughs> right? <laughs> well, I do find this interesting that this story does, unlike a lot of Lovecraft, does go back to that. 17th century New England horror. I mean, most of Lovecraft's stuff is more set contemporaneously in the 20s or perhaps going back to the late 19th century, you know, whaling ships, New England. Here he's actually reaching back to an area he doesn't mine as much, and he's mining very explicitly, as we said before. He's actually quoting from Cotton Mather. Mm -hmm. In a sense, I almost... This is... I mean, a lot of contemporary... Society is a lot of very facile, same in witch trials. I mean, we get very little uh, the actual kind of horror underneath the surface or horror that you could evoke from the brain. Like, have either of you seen the 2015 The Witch? No. Yes. Movie? Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. yes. I, I think Jim will agree with me that, that, that like like this, that, that evokes that sort of the horror and evil and stuff simmering on the surface in Puritan New England very, very well. And Lovecraft does that here in taking those elements of that and bringing it forward to uh, the contemporary time of uh, Carter and uh, Manson. Mm-hmm. Got a few more quotes here I want to throw at you. Uh, here's a, This is a little later on that same page. Others knew, but did not dare to tell. There is no public hint of why they whispered about that about the lock on the door to the attic stairs in the house of a childless, broken, embittered old man who had put up a blank slate slab by an avoided grave. Although one may trace enough evasive legends to curdle the thinnest blood. So this invites our speculation, right? That's, Uh That's where the speculation that Carter uses to make his story... Which, <laughs> come, you know, the way he describes it is barely fiction, right? It's sort of more like, <laughs> here is a, here's a couple of things I'm basing this on, and uh, all I did was, you know, put it together in a package. And you're saying that that's unrealistic? Well, let me tell you. It ain't, no, <laughs> it's not so unrealistic. Um, Indeed. On the next page, page 81, there's a number of things I marked. That's very interesting. So the uh, that idea, and I think you talked about this on your show, Mr. Jim Moon, um, uh, the idea that latent images are 
the images of people who stare through glass uh, are retained in the glass is a sort of a thing that we've forgotten. Well, nobody talks about that anymore, right? I assume that that was a mm-hmm. thing at some point in history. Um, but um, there is a story um, by what's his name? Uh, it, and he, I think he's an Irish author. Um, it's not actually a story; it's a series of stories um, about slow glass. Do you guys know about this? Yeah, it's a science fiction story. Yeah, we, we can capture. I think it's yeah. a series of stories, so it's not just one. Or maybe, maybe uh, the way I originally encountered it was actually in a comic. Um, Are and, you talking about uh, Bob Shaw? Yeah, Bob Shaw's uh, yeah. stories about slow glass. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and I, I think there might even be a novel version of some of it. Um, but the fascinating idea there is that we invent a substance that can absorb the uh, light of just passing through glass, but it's because it's a different medium than regular glass, it goes through at a much slower age. Yeah, like years. Yes, mm. it, and it's based on the thickness, right? So if you have a uh, ten feet of glass, it takes a hundred years, or there's some ratio, right? Um, and What's what's so interesting about the the science fiction concept of it uh, is that very little can be done with it other than sort of the Lovecraftian effect of you know you're wandering through the Irish countryside and uh, in, in this science fiction future and some person had enough money to uh, collect. Um, the light of a beautiful Irish countryside so that they could take it home uh, or sell it, sell it at the, at the country store, take it to, to or sell it at a country market where it was be taken to a city and placed on a wall. Right. And it would, ref, it would take in that light, the view from the outside of the beautiful Irish countryside for the 10 years that was there collected. And then, be able to reflect that into the house uh, for 10 years, right? So it's a beautiful idea of a, of a technology coming from a piece of um, a very uh, sort of an effect coming from a very weird little piece of technology. But the effect it has is, you know, you go into the countryside and you, you see a woman inside a house, you know, doing her daily business, but you never see her coming out. And then when you investigate more closely, you realize she's been dead for 50 years. And that 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 light, instead of being reflected from the outside, you know, looking at it through the inside, you would see the outside of the world. Instead, you see inside. And and that's a really cool idea. Very, um, it ties in in a very strange Lovecraftian way, in a way that most other things don't, in a very science fiction-y sort of. Mm. way um yeah I, I encountered this in the unknown world's science fiction magazines um and the story was light of other days yeah um which is pretty darn terrific i think it was novelized later i'm not sure i'm not sure how what effect it would have as a novel but it, it worked very well as a short story 
<clears throat> so I'm wondering if Bob Shaw was familiar with the same kind of folklore stories that love is going so. on in here. Um, because there is um, a whole sort of raft of these kind of kind of uh, images being imprinted on glass sort of stories in folklore. Um, uh, and there's quite a few from America. Uh, and there's one of kind of a, a young white girl who pined for an India lover and her Indian lover had been driven away by her father, and after she died, her sorrowing face was left on the window she used to watch for her lover's return from. Mm-hmm. And uh, But there's, inter- there's quite a number of where there is uh, a kind of a pseudo-scientific agency given that um, it's lightning, that lightning will strike the window or a mirror, and it will capture an imprint of the deceased person's face on it. Of, uh, it's what in folklore they call the motif of photographic lightning. Mm. Which is interesting. <laughs> there's there's a similar uh, effect, um, you know, sort of giving you sort of uh, the emotions in phys- in 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 physics. Um, uh, in a short story by uh, Ray Bradbury, where they go to Mars, they're living on Mars, and there's all these dead cities where the Martians used to occupy, right? Mm-hmm. And, that, and that, uh, maybe this is the very final. Uh, oh, is, is this the one where they're looking for a place to live? I can't. I can't remember. I think it's called the Martians, right? And they, yeah. And then they go down to the canal, and the the children ask the father or the mother, um, "Where are all the Martians?" And he says, "Look down in there, into the canal." And they look down into the canal, and they see the reflection, and they say, "Yeah, there they are." Yep, that is the last uh, story from Bradbury in the Martian Chronicle cycle, and I think that's the point. If I'm going to psychoanalyze myself, when I read this when I was ten, I, I decided I was a science fiction fan. When I finally got that, like, like I went, oh, yeah, and and the world of science fiction kind of like spread open for me, and I've been here ever since. It's that that image of them looking down at the reflection in the canal and seeing themselves as the new Martians. Right. And uh, just like when you, whenever you go to that window, right, to, to look at the at the girl pining for her lost Indian lover, what do you see? You see the the glass <laughs> and you see a reflection of a of an image, maybe not perfectly, but that has eyes and a mouth and and uh some emotion to it. <laughs> <laughs> I recall, I was reading somewhere recently, uh, it was on a folklore site, a discussion about uh, various, you know, local sort of haunted house stories people knew. And one was there was a deserted old house with boarded up windows and apparently some crazy murderer had lived there. And the legend was if you went up to the window and peeked through the, uh, you know, the boards and looked into the house, you'd see the murderer's eye glaring back at you. (laughs) And of course, many people, you know, tried to do this there and came back asserting it was true, but <laughs> obviously not realizing that, you know, what they were seeing was a reflection of their own eye. Right. Mm-hmm. Or, or maybe realizing it. <laughs> That's what I, <laughs> I always like to uh, <laughs> think, you know, is everybody's capable of it and uh, some are just not able to recognize that they're capable of, <laughs> capable of it until they're shown their own reflection. Um there's, there's one more quote here on 81 I don't think I read yet that I want to read. Um, this is just after the uh, – uh, where I've got my notes. Slow Glass, The Shunned House, The Tree by H.P. Lovecraft. Um, and then this is great. 
Whether or not such apparitions had ever gored or, or smothered people to death, as told in the uncorroborated traditions, they had produced a strong and consistent impression, and were yet darkly feared by the very aged natives, though largely forgotten by the last two generations, perhaps dying for lack of being thought about. Moreover, so far as aesthetic theory was involved, if the psychic emanations of human creatures be grotesque distortions, what coherent representation could express or portray so gibbous and infamous a nebulosity as the specter of a malign, chaotic perversion itself a morbid blasphemy against nature? Molded by the dead brain of a hybrid nightmare, would not such a vaporous terror constitute in all loathsome truth the ex exquisitely the shrieking unnameable? <laughs> and then there's a page break, and then, oh, the hour had grown late. <laughs> a singular noiseless bat brushed by me, and presently he spoke. But is that house with the attic window still standing and deserted? Yes, I answered. I have seen it. <laughs> and then we get the the events. A description of the house, the description of the, of this, oh yes, here is this, the skull. It had four inch horns, but a face and jaw, something like yours and mine. <laughs> it, it, I, 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 I want to go back to a little bit mm -hmm. about the, uh, about the uh, last two generations, like, and were directly feared by age natives, the largely forgotten perhaps dying for lack of being thought about. In a sense, Lovecraft is suggesting that his monstrosity here would die if no one was no one knew enough to be afraid of it. Mm -hmm. That it has to be it has to be engaged with and feared and have that psychic contact with humanity in order to still be a going concern. If no one walked by this house in two generations, it'd be gone and gone and forgotten but that fresh influx of human terror is what keeps alive and in a sense manton and and carter have given it a, a fresh dose by their encounter yeah. and they're talking so, about it and they're evo evoking it with these these um spell-like magic words right yep Oh, let's say the, the telling of the tale is the summoning of the creature. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Mm. We were talking before about, yeah, Lovecraft's words being magic and spells. And I think, yeah, Carter and Manton here are, as you say, Jim, summoning the creature unwittingly. If they only had left it alone, if they only had not opened the book, if they only had not sat on the tomb. Mm. Whoops. Well, see, I would say it's not even that bad. <laughs> see, the, that 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 was one of the, my problems I had with the short film is that um, it, it's not just a hospital; it's it's Arkham Asylum, right? <laughs> At the end, yeah, um, Manton's destroyed. A... Uh, whereas in the end of this, um, all man, all that's happened is you know, yeah, they've had rough sex or something oh <laughs> jesse <laughs> and uh you know they're recovering and and now they have uh stories to tell you know yeah maybe they'll show the the scars later on but it's not it's it's not um it, it's very much unlike the 1988 horror film where we've got all these these corpses right sort of created by the 
by the effect of uh, of uh, what I uh, uh, when I think about Elida in that original film, um, mm-hmm. I love the effect um, that you know the what as you point out in your podcast about the um, the show the the two movies and the and the short film, Mr. Jimin, you you talked about how good the um, the acting of the actress playing Elida is and how the movements are right and the, mm. the visual it's very i mean they did spend all the money in the right places i i would think um definitely how effective it is um even like the film stock is sort of cheap compared to uh what's being filmed and if you take stills from any of those um those scenes where she's standing above one of the was it manton or <laughs> one of the characters um it's uh, they're very effective in that her movements are are frightening and it makes you think about um, why like I was why is she so white <laughs> and I was thinking well the reason she's so white is because she's old she's been there for a mm. hundred years uh-huh. she used to be young and she's abandoned and basically the reason all these murders are justified <laughs> maybe and meals are justified is because these are repeated home invaders right they keep coming into her house. it's it's not that it happens outside uh you know in the countryside anymore um they come right into her house and uh, when when the teenagers are wandering around the house um there seems to be some bones like here and there and um that's the little boy in the story who went in and came out insane right um (laughs) he came went into a house and some ladies said come and he ran out and freaked out. <laughs> I have a well, lot of sympathy for these. Uh, oh, that's an interesting thing. There's a there's a there's a good scene in the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre mm-hmm. which echoes that idea of you mean that you have a, a creepy old house that kids break down and they they you know they essentially break and enter and go into it looking mm-hmm. for somebody, looking for some petrol. And of course the um you know, it's home to a family of deranged cannibal killers. The, the famous one of which, of course, is Leatherface. And, you know, Leatherface dispatches two of the kids. But then there's this great scene where after he's just taking care of another one, he sort of sits down, he's got his head in his hands, he's breathing heavily, and he's a mute character. But just the way he's played by Gunnar Hansen, you have this sense of he sat there going, what the hell is going on yeah. today? Where are these kids coming from? Why is this happening to me? Why do they keep breaking into my house? <laughs> yeah. Uh, there's a, um, it's, it's like I go back to the Dunwichore, you know, it can be read uh, in a very sympathetic manner that these are people being persecuted mm. by annoying, uh, whack job religious neighbors in the same way that, I don't know. I, I don't know what that Cotton Mather story is about. I don't know how much of a basis of reality any of it is. But um, there was a, a beast that begat a creature, right? Um, so we've got an animal that gave birth to a half-human or something like that. Um, basically, some poor deformed person who then in, in the in the ancestor of Carter's uh, story, um, we have as he built a tomb for this being, then uh, outlived it, and then 
Carter placed the bones in the tomb to, you know, sort of bring some dignity to the situation. And, uh, it's, it's like, yeah, get off my tomb. <laughs> yeah. Get off my lawn, lawn you kids. <laughs> There's some justification. I mean, the, nobody actually dies in this story, right? So it's, you know, it's, yeah, it, it was, um, rough, rough action, but, uh, very sympathetic. And I really, really like, I, I like re- rereading these and, and seeing how much they do expand out from what, what is essentially, you know, five pages of, of high level vocab words. <laughs> or maybe six pages. Well, it's one of those things. I, I, I like the meta aspect of this story as well. We haven't really touched on of, um, mm. it's, it's one thing that it, it drives me to destruct distraction is that kind of, um, the kind of lazy critical opinions get passed around kind mm-hmm. of, you know what I mean? Without any sort of thought. I mean, um, you know, modern one is, uh, Oh, the Hobbit film. You can read the book quicker. No, you can't. You really can't read a book in three hours. Not properly. I, I narrate stories on a regular basis. Six pages yeah. can take half an hour. The end. Yeah, but, yeah. you know, it's the thing kind of Lovecraft. Oh, his stories, they're always about unmentionable and indescribable monsters. And it's kind of, well, that's not true. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah. He actually describes his monsters in great detail. You have whole paragraphs. And, uh, you know, it's just a lazy sort of, sort of thing. And it's kind of... Um, it's always interesting to, you know, to read this story of where Lovecraft, you know, seems to be from a, I think, you know, from quite early on was aware of that kind of linguistic, you know, linguistic trap of calling things indescribable and mm. unnameable and that, you know, lazy people will go, oh, but you must be able to call it something or, you know, give us a description. And this is his riposte to it. Of, But, you know, yeah. it does less flippantly, it ties into this important theme sort of we touched upon before about how Lovecraft is, um, he's interested in rumor and imagination, illusions, the numinous side of horror. He's not so much interested in the fact that here's a monster. He's more interested in that. What is the effect of knowing there is a monster? What effect does that have upon us and how we, you know, see the universe? And that's a, a recurring theme that builds out from this short story, in his later works, this idea of kind of the real horror isn't the fact there is a Cthulhu. It's realizing there is a Cthulhu and that changes everything for us. Yeah. It's, it's, it's the psychology and the psycho psychological changes upon becoming exposed to the darkly numinous rather than, yeah, the splatterpunk of Cthulhu wiping out everything. It's like, what happens if you know that Cthulhu is, is sleeping and Riley will rise one day? What does that do to a man? Mm-hmm. Um, do you think uh, there, there, there's something that shows up in this, I guess, twice? And I, I don't know. Is it because New England's full of old places compared to the rest of the United States? Mm-hmm. Um, there's uh, So when he describes Joel Manton... Uh, you know, being the principal of the East High School, born and bred in Boston, and sharing quote New England's self-satisfied deafness to the del- to the delicate overtones of life. So that that <laughs> delicate overtones of life is um, that's something that I think Lovecraft is is saying 
is really important. Um, but what are they? <laughs> um, it's not exactly clear. Um, when he talks about his story wisp- in whispers, you know, being uh, scoffed at. What? No, how, no, it wasn't scoffed at. It was. Um, oh, here, yeah. Um, he says, in a good many places, especially the South and Pacific coasts, they took the magazines off the stands at the complaints of silly milksops. But New England didn't get the thrill and merely shrugged its shoulders at my extravagance. So, in some sense, he's he's criticizing uh, the New England New Englanders in that they didn't appreciate the story, in and they didn't pull it off the shelves, right? Um, whereas uh, in the South, they didn't want to get the story, and in the Pacific Coast, they didn't want to get the story. They need to pull it off the shelves, right? So he has it both ways, in that people don't appreciate uh, what he's doing in either place. And yet, I think he's saying we're capable here in, in the in the um, New England in a way that maybe they aren't in in the the Pacific or in the South. Although there is Southern Gothic, there isn't a lot of California Gothic, right? Um, and it makes Calif- me, that makes me think is is there California Gothic anywhere? I don't, um, I don't think there is. I think there's noir and there's you know hard boiled. That's right, sort of the, the San Francisco, Los Angeles PI sort of uh, the new, the new, um, the mean streets of the forties, thirties and forties, yeah. right? And that's sort of you know the, I mean that's the whole thing about California is it's it, it is the place where people make things new, right? Um, mm-hmm. But but on the other hand, it makes me think of also, uh, so what other people who like Algernon Blackwood what he can do with the with the faraway places right in the willows um he's got this effect of you know what being in the wilderness is like and seeing the power of nature as opposed to the power of an old building to absorb the emanations of its occupants or of uh, this graveyard in its moldering festering uh uh nourishment for the for the the what the rank grasses and trees and such um in a story like the wendigo algernon blackwood is able to take you know uh canadian wilderness and turn and have the same sort of um reverence for that which is un unnamed in the same in fact uh if you have you i know mr jim moon you read the wendigo have you read it uh paul not recently, so, okay. so that's been a long time. It has a very similar effect in that, uh, you know, there are people camping out in the wilderness and uh, they're afflicted by a being. Right. That, that And in the same way that the willows is there, they experience something that is the invisible, intangible, but wholly real in some undescribable way. It's, it's it's very cool. I, I I don't I I don't know how Lovecraft could be uh, could exist in a place like California where everything is new and 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 something like that. And 
I'm not sure he's right about the South. Maybe had he not visited the South by this point in this in his life? Uh, Mr. Uh, twenty-five. By twenty-five, so. had he been to uh, like Florida and? I, I think it, I think it was, it was later. He actually went. Did you take a trip down to Florida? Yeah, because he, um, he, he ends up quite liking it, doesn't he? Mm. I mean, I know the kind of on the backstory of this tale, the whole thing about the, uh, the story being withdrawn is thought to be a, a reference to uh, a CM, CM Eddie Jr. story, the love dead, which love mm-hmm. revised. And which also a, a is the story of, of, of uh, sort of deviant sexuality. <laughs> well, yes, it's about necrophilia <laughs> and uh, it, it proved, proved a little too strong. And, um, uh, it was withdrawn from sale from many places, apparently. Um, it's, a, it's a claim that some people have disputed, but um, S.T. Joshi uh, has found evidence that it was actually withdrawn in Indiana. Um, presumably Lovecraft had the inside dope being a, <laughs> being a you know, good friend of Eddie's and knew exactly where <laughs> uh, he'd drawn, you know, what areas of the country Weird Tales had drawn heat from. And uh-huh. certainly it meant, um, apparently, you know, Farnsworth, right, the editor of Weird Tales, was very cagey about accepting anything for Lovecraft for quite a while afterwards. Oh, my. There was, um, uh, there was actually, uh, the other thing I discovered in, in Weird, in Weird Tales, um, I'm trying to see if I can actually find the actual story here. Uh, letter to the editor. Okay. There's a bunch of letters to the editor I put up. But there actually was a short story. Uh, it says, uh, maybe that's not right. Nineteen twelve. I found a short story in in um, in Weird Tales by a, I think it was a sixteen-year-old girl, um, and it was it was a short story, but it's in the letters columns, um, and it was like, here's my short story. And it's like it is like three paragraphs long or something like that, and it's about a, a male. A mortician or morgue attendant who has sex with the dead bodies of of, of the people brought in and it was like oh, yeah oh maybe she was 13 i, I was a very surprised to see that i was oh, like this, this girl has a career ahead of her says the editor and it's like wow <laughs> um and, and of course i never found anything else by her so i don't know if that's true but i was very shocked to see that um uh, transgressive it's not, even, it's not it's not even grandma and grandpa at this point uh, you know in the 1920s this is great grandma and great grandpa were <laughs> deviant sexuality <laughs> folks <laughs> um <laughs> yeah in fact i believe there was a, a canadian movie that was um uh it was pretty well received at the time it came out and it was about a woman morgan tenant who who had sexual relationships with with the corpses she attended. Yes, I've seen it. Um, I'm trying to remember the kissed. name of it. Kissed. kissed it's yeah, it's it's quite good. Mm. Mm, it is. Kissed. It's a uh, considering it, it sounds a thoroughly repellent film. <laughs> it's actually <laughs> a subject, a very yes. well, very done and rather tasteful. Uh, very strange, tasteful. Yes. Mm. <laughs> That's right. Um, I'm glad you uh, remembered the title because I I had forgotten it. There it is. Love knows no bounds. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently not even the bounds of death. Who knew? 1996, mm. Lynn Stokovich. 
Yeah. And I just found a poster with a pull quote, a film really to die for. <laughs> oh, wow. Wow. So, yeah. So I could see how Lovecraft could be agitating against um, people not wanting to read weird, weird tales. And so in a sense, this story is a bit of a take that at mm-hmm. people who don't just don't get it, I guess is the phrase. Well, he had previous, because, I mean, he, he wrote one of his first publications was the short story Dagon, um, which appeared in the Amateur Press, and he took flack for that, so much so he wrote a little essay called In Defense of Dagon, where, you know, he argued for the merit of a weird tale. And, you know, one of you get kind of a touch of that in The Unnameable, where, you know, he talks about how, you know, Manton thinks, you know, uh, literature should focus itself with everyday things being transcribed. <laughs> I think that's, of... that's that's an old old argument for anyone who you know likes you know horror or SF or fantasy. Mm. There's all that kind of. Well, why are you interested in this made up stuff? That's all just kid stuff, and it's kind of yep. well, it's just, what's a proper film about Albanian engineers or something? You know, <laughs> and it's kind of. I mean, you see yeah. it every year in the Oscars of kind of now it's got to such a, a cliched point of kind of, you know, there is the kind of worthy Oscar film that's ticking that's right. so many boxes. We've made a film about these issues. Give us some awards, please. And yes, you know, and what, what, there's that line from, um, was the movie about making a Vietnam movie where they, uh, is Robert Downey oh, you Jr. Took, you saw Tropic a, Thunder. Tropic Thunder. Is that what it's called? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, where he, they talk about how he was, he was in a previous movie trying to get an Academy Award and he says, he says, uh, my, my mistake was I went full retard. If I'd gone, <laughs> I never go full retard because they don't give you the award for that. But if you go half <laughs> retard like Billy Bob Thornton in, <laughs> in Sling Blade, boy, you get the awards. <laughs> yeah. But it is skewering, right? Skewering <laughs> because it's true. That's the truth, right? Um, and was this year, I think it was, uh, there was a real negative reaction to the lack of black actors being honored in last year's thing. So when they go overboard this time, right? And they had, they had three movies that they were like, oh, these are going to win everything. And then, um, so it, it, there is this game, um, that people play with. I mean, there is this thing where people pretend to have read books or seen movies that they've never seen or read right because mm. it, it it it's the proper thing and the the idea of the guilty pleasure is tied right into it um where i think lovecraft is rightly you know i'm sure glad he didn't listen to the milk sops i'm not sure what a milk sop is but i do know <laughs> i don't think we should have listened to them uh, because this is this is terrific and if he had not, if he had started writing, uh, I don't know, realistic fiction, I do not think I would have been as big a fan. I mean, it was possible, but he never, he, even, you know, Philip K. Dick, he even tried to, uh, write, you know, straight up. I books. was going to bring, I was going to bring him up. Philip K. Dick wanted to write realistic fiction and turned out to be pants at it. He turned out that it was the crazy science fiction stuff that he actually turned out to be good at writing. If Lovecraft had turned to, realistic fiction the world would be a poorer place I, I it doesn't seem like he would he was ever capable of it like the the thing is is dick wanted to be respected right 
But uh-huh. I, I love that Lovecraft is willing to go and say, I don't care what people think. Um, here, I'll make my defense. But he never, you know, dabbles in trying to be respectable. And that's so honorable. I, I don't I'm, think I'm he not, ever... I, I mean, I'm he, not as he, big as... I'm not I, as big I don't as think, a I don't think there is scholar. any story by him that doesn't have something like this. I mean, it, it, the the closest he goes away from this would be um, sort of those historical comedy pieces, I guess. But even those have the elements of everything he likes, which is sort of just the the intertextual obsession. Mm. Um, yeah. The I, Every I, character has to be acquainted with a library and a graveyard and and yeah. uh, a grove outside of town, right? There's no... I'm now, um, sorry. I'm now imagining uh, Lovecraft crossed with F. Scott Fitzgerald and my brain is breaking. That would be that would be it would be awesome, but it'd be less than what we got. Why if the, Lovecraft if Lovecraft gone the full Fitzgerald? I think that the, I think that the thing that Fitzgerald is is you know I, I'm not a Fitzgerald expert at all, but I think the reason I don't want to read The Great Gatsby is because all the problems that the people at that party have are problems because they don't embrace the things that Lovecraft's embracing. Right? That they're in an, they're people in an existential crisis who find no way out where I think Lovecraft's way of finding the way out is by embracing re- the nat- the nature of the universe and saying, yep, it's true. We got to deal with it. Um, isn't it amazing what happens when the sun goes down, the stars come out. Most people don't notice that they just turn the lights on and drive to their parties and make noise to try and keep this, the fright away. Something like they, that. They all look up at the cold, pitiless stars and see the beauty and terror of the universe. That's right. They can't. Mm-hmm. They, they, they don't want to look up at that, so they have to turn the lights on and make lots of party noise and drink and do all the things that... And the daytime, daytime for Lovecraft, right, is, is uh, for writing letters... Um, and eating ice cream, <laughs> petting cats, <laughs> eating ice cream, and uh, writing letters. Nighttime, the the when the sun goes down, that's when when uh, life really begins. I love. I, I I mean, think about just how much he relies on dreams. Um, the dreams of the people. See, I'm. I'm attacking F. F Scott Fitzgerald and I, I just really don't know enough about him to attack him but the reason I don't want to read him is I don't think the dreams of the characters in F Scott Fitzgerald's works are going to be of any interest to me because I think they weren't of interest to him Pity, uh, pitiless uh, ignorant uh, me attacking F Scott Fitzgerald for the reasons I don't <laughs> think I want to read him am I wrong Maybe he's, um, got, maybe he's got great writing. I don't know. He he does have great writing, but you're right. You're not interested in his dreams. You're interested in his characters and the lives they find themselves trapped in or hurt, rushing boundlessly toward whether they will or not, and trying to deal with that. It's 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 definitely I, I brought him up as an antithesis to Lovecraft because that's what it is. Mm. I mean, I think I think yeah, his works stand right. the test of time, but 
do I read F. Century South reread re- them for pleasure? No, I haven't read them really since college. I read a lot of Lovecraft, though, so there you are. Mm. You know, so I, I'd, I'd posit uh, as an even a more even concrete kind of opposite is as uh, like the work of writers who were very popular and high respected in the 20s, like Upton Sinclair mm-hmm. and uh, Theodore Dreiser. Um, uh, and, you know, their prose style was brutal, <laughs> i.e. there was no style at all. And the subject matter was social realism, mm. you know, to the nth degree in grinding detail with, you know, with, you know, no metaphor, no poetry, no philosophy. I mean, they their books are a marvelous insight and great social documents, mm. but they're not fun to read. <laughs> They're not good stories. You know you what I mean? See, you don't take them to the beach or to the North Main Woods with you, that's for sure. Mm. Definitely not. <laughs> this has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com.